Welcome to A Bigger Life, where you can break through the distractions, stop, listen, and speak to God in prayer. I'm Dave Cover. I want to help you use the Bible as your conversation with God so you can live a bigger life. I want to look today at a psalm that is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament by far. And yet it's a psalm that probably most Christians are unfamiliar with. There's a good reason for that is because it is something where its significance is something the New Testament writers bring out because Jesus himself cited the significance of this psalm. And yet its significance on the surface is not one we would 3,000 years later naturally see and appreciate when it comes to our own lives. But what I want to show you is how this psalm, the reason why it's the most quoted psalm in the New Testament is because it really is a psalm that is good news for you. The significance of what this psalm is about is what gives your life this sense of triumphalism, even in times of discouragement, even in times where you're not sure where your life is going. This psalm is the good news of the bigger story. Remember that significant passage where Jesus, after he rose from the dead, is talking to his disciples. And it says that when he appeared to them, they were startled and frightened. You know, all of a sudden Jesus is there thinking they saw a ghost. And it says, he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do you, why do doubts rise in your minds? And so here's the disciples. Here's those who were, were with Jesus three years. And a lot of times we think they were sort of gullible and quick to believe. And yet in all the resurrection appearances, they, they are not quick to believe. They tend to be frightened. They tend to be doubting. They tend to be amazed. And Jesus says, why are you troubled and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself. Touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. So this is a resurrected body. This is not some appearance in a dream. This is Jesus bodily resurrected from the dead. He bodily walked out of the tomb and he's standing there and he's inviting them to see his hands and his feet and to even touch his bones. Touch me and see a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe it because of joy and amazement, in other words, they're just so overjoyed, overwhelmed, and they still don't quite believe what they're singing. A lot of times we just think that, again, the, the disciples were sort of, you know, just wanted to believe so bad they made up stories. But you can see here it's quite the opposite. They're having to be convinced over and over again. But eventually they were convinced because they died proclaiming Jesus' resurrection over the next 30 years. But Jesus says, he asked them after they, that but they still did not believe because of joy and amazement. He asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. And this is just one of these things where it just seems strange. Why is Jesus suddenly asking for something to eat when they're having one of the most significant conversations in their life? And the reason why is because ghosts don't eat. And he wants them to see that when he eats this fish, it's not like the cartoons where they see it kind of trans 
lucent going down into his stomach. It's going into his body, and it's like anybody else who eats, it's disappearing. This is a great passage to show us that when Paul says that our bodies are going to be transformed into a resurrected body like Christ's resurrected body, we're going to have resurrected bodies in the kingdom of heaven that eat and that embrace one another, can touch, and we have flesh and bones just like Jesus has here. This is a significant passage to tell us the story that our life is in. And so it says, and the reason I'm saying all this is because of where we're going here in verse 44. I'm in Luke 24, 44. Jesus said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. So Jesus had been preparing them, had been teaching this to them. They were slow to get it. But he goes on, he says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. That was a way to talk about what we call the Old Testament, the law of Moses, the books of Moses, the books of the prophets, and the Psalms, Jesus says in particular. Jesus is saying here in particular, the Psalms have things written about Jesus that must be fulfilled. And then in verse 45, is interesting. It says, then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. Jesus saw the scriptures. Jesus saw what we call the Old Testament. He saw them as the very true words of God that must be fulfilled. And he opened their mind to understand the things in them that particularly were about Jesus. The Bible is a supernatural book. It is written by the Holy Spirit, and we need to have Jesus open our minds by the Holy Spirit to fully understand it. So when we look at a psalm like Psalm 110, it specifically is telling us things about Jesus that were fulfilled, that still yet must be fulfilled, and that in some way, as we approach any psalm, we're depending upon God's Spirit to open our mind to understand His Word to us. It's not just a book we're reading and we can get it with our own reason. We need God's Spirit to open up things to us, to see things in this His Word, and to open up our heart to be convicted by it, to be touched by it in some spiritual way, that it would be a light that goes on in our head that replaces the darkness. In my best moments, when I sit down to read the Bible, I remember to pray, God, open my mind to understand the Scriptures. God, I pray that you would open our mind even now as we talk about Psalm 110, that we would understand your Scriptures, your holy writings, that we would see Jesus in a greater way, that we would see you in a greater way, that we would have more faith in your promises for us, all that you are for us in Christ. Psalm 110 says it's a psalm of David. And then verse 1 says, The Lord, and that's the all capital L-O-R-D, which means Yahweh, the I am. The Lord says to my Lord. Now that Lord has a capital L, but it has a lowercase O-R-D. That's the Hebrew word Adonai, which means Lord, owner, master. And so it says, The Lord says to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, you and I are reading that, and we're just kind of moving on. There's nothing much significant to that where we might be thinking, oh, that's interesting because there's two lords. The I am says to Adonai, the I am says to my master, my, my king, my owner, my lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Now, what's interesting about that, and you, you probably have read this if you've read the Gospels at all, that Jesus actually brings this passage up. It's interesting because he's talking, it says in Matthew chapter 22, he's talking to the religious leaders of his day, and he says, while, they, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, what do you think about the Messiah? Whose son is he? So Jesus is asking them, okay, let's talk about the Messiah. Whose son is he? And, and the reason why Jesus is talking about the Messiah is because he is the Messiah. And so he's trying to have a conversation that engages them so that they would be perplexed in their assumptions because they're not seeing Jesus as the Messiah. So they answer, the son of David, they replied. And they're right. I mean, clearly in 2 Samuel 7, God promises, he makes a covenant with David that his son, and that would be a descendant, would be on his throne forever, that the Messiah would be a descendant of David. But then it says, he said to them, Jesus said to them, how is it then that David, speaking by the Spirit, calls him Lord? For he says, and now he's going to quote our verse, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. Now, the reason why that's a little different than the verse we just read until I put your enemies under your feet, what we read in our psalm was, until I make your enemies your footstool, is because Jesus is quoting from the Septuagint, or at least Matthew is putting the verse that Jesus quotes as the verse from the Septuagint. The Septuagint was the Greek translation of the Hebrew Scriptures that was done around 200 B.C. It was a very common street translation of the Hebrew Scriptures, that the Jews used, especially those who lived in what we would call the European countries. And in that translation, it, it, they just sort of translate, until I make your enemies your footstool, they, they go to the meaning of it, much like our translations do, and they say, until I put your enemies under your feet. That's what it means to be a footstool. So there's that. But the point is, is that Jesus quotes this passage. This passage had been around for a thousand years before Jesus lived. And Jesus attributes that even, you know, our psalm says it's a psalm of David. Jesus agrees. And Jesus says that David, speaking by the Spirit, and then he quotes the psalm. So the view that Jesus had of the psalms is that he believed these subscripts under the psalm. This says a psalm of David, and Jesus said, yeah, that's true. And that he believed that the Holy Spirit was inspiring these psalms. A lot of times we think that to be educated, we have to have a certain skepticism of different things about whether or not uh, David wrote this psalm or whether or not these psalms are reflecting the word of God because they're very strange to us and we don't always agree with their theology. We always, almost always expect God to agree with us rather than strive to agree with God. But clearly Jesus had a view of the psalms that saw them as scripture, holy writings, that saw them as this psalm in particular. It says it's a psalm of David, and Jesus said, believed it was a psalm of David, and that Jesus is saying that it was David speaking by the Holy Spirit. Now, that means two things. One is that the Spirit of God was inspiring these psalms in a way for us to, as a way for us to worship God. But also, Jesus is getting at the prophetic element of this verse that David is saying something that perhaps David didn't quite fully understand. Maybe he did, 
but the Holy Spirit is speaking through him in a prophetic way because it has a mystery to it that's revealing something about the Messiah that would come a thousand years after David wrote this. And so Jesus goes on in verse 45. Jesus says, If then David calls him Lord, how can he be his son? No one could say a word in reply, and from that day on, no one dared to ask him any more questions. The version of this story that's in Mark chapter 12 it says the crowd, Mark says that the large crowd listened to him with delight. People were loving the fact that when Jesus talked about the Psalms, he always had an insight that was quite a bit deeper, and it challenged the assumptions of people of his day. What Jesus is doing here is showing the puzzle how can the Messiah be the son of David if David calls him my Lord? Now, the Messiah, it is the son of David. He is the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And that's, the, that's a little bit of the, the buzz bomb that Jesus is throwing into their little party of their assumptions, their the- theological assumptions. Jesus is kind of blowing them up a little bit with the chaotic buzz bomb of, well, whose son is he if David calls him my Lord? How can he be David's son? And everybody's astonished because clearly that's something they didn't recognize before. They'd read this psalm over and over and didn't think about that as a problem. Now, clearly, Jesus sees this psalm, this verse, as a reference to himself. And so it's why when the New Testament quotes this psalm more than any other psalm is because this is probably one of the psalms that Jesus expounded on more in Luke 24 after he rose from the dead when he showed them how everything written in the psalms about him must be fulfilled, and he opened their mind to understand the scriptures. This is a psalm saying that by the Holy Spirit that Yahweh says to my Lord, David says, to my master, He's, even though he, we know he's his son, he's the descendant of David a thousand years later, he's also higher than David. And so David calls him my Lord. And this is what Yahweh says to the Messiah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, or the, as a Septuagint rightly translated, until I put all your enemies under your feet, until I subdue all your enemies. Now, in that little cryptic phrase right there, I think, is a description of the 2,000 years since Jesus died and rose from the dead. That there's something happening in the story of this world that Jesus is symbolically at the right hand of Yahweh until Yahweh uses Christ to put all of Christ's enemies under his feet. That's what's happening in this age. God has enemies. These enemies have been, there's something beyond even just human enemies, spiritual forces of darkness that God is in warfare with. And Jesus's death and resurrection is the means by which God is bringing about the defeat of his enemies. So Jesus says the very last words of Jesus in the gospel of Matthew, he says in Matthew 28, 18, all authority and heaven and earth has been given to me. This is, this is the idea that Jesus, because he has died and risen from the dead, is in the place of rule over God's creation as the perfect human, the human king. He is putting back in place what God had created humanity to have, to be in his image, to exercise his dominion, to put all things under his feet, so to speak, as he cares for and reflects God's care for the earth. 
and Jesus has been put back in this position, but the first thing he needs to do is destroy God's enemies, the enemies of his creation, the enemies of the good of humanity, the enemies of his eternal plan. So Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Jesus is the one here that God is speaking to. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool, until I, until I put all your enemies under your feet. So Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Now I'm the one who has authority over all the world. You can now make disciples of all the nations. And then Jesus says, and I am with you always until the very end of the age. So in some sense, Jesus says that we are now part of this verse, that we're in Jesus. Jesus is at the right hand of God. Paul says that we are raised together with Christ and seated together with Christ at the right hand of God in Ephesians chapter 2. That phrase is used over and over again to describe this sense that Jesus is at the, he's God's right hand man. He's Yahweh's right hand man as the perfect human, and he's also the son of God. He's not just the son of David. He's not just the son of Abraham. He's the son of God, which is why David calls him my Lord. He is fully God. He is fully human. He's the son of man. He's the son of God. And he is taking back this earth as a place where God rules and a place where humanity flourishes. And therefore the earth flourishes and all that God intended for the earth to be. But right now we live in the age that is this part until I make your enemies your footstool, until I put all your enemies under your feet. So Jesus says, go therefore and make disciples, make believers, make people who are my followers in all the nations baptizing them and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus assumed this right-hand position. This is, again, symbolic. This right-hand position of authority over all God's creation after the resurrection. But when Jesus was talking to the high priest and they were asking him if he is the Messiah, and this is at the, at the trial before his crucifixion, and it says, Jesus says, but I tell all of you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. And that's what Jesus said. And it says, the high priest tore his clothes and said, he has spoken blasphemy. He is worthy of death. Jesus was claiming to be this one, this Messiah at the right hand of God. So Hebrews tells us in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. And then in verse 13, it quotes that verse, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty-five about Jesus, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. He's quoting this psalm. And then he says, the last enemy to be destroyed is death. When Jesus comes back, death itself will be the final enemy under his feet, and we will live forever in resurrected bodies. This is that chapter where Paul is talking about the resurrection. And when we understand how significant this verse is to Jesus and to the New Testament authors, and yet we don't really, you know, 
we're not that familiar with it. Uh, it. It shows that they understood something about the narrative of what it means to be in this story, perhaps more than we do. Because it's, you see here that the main reason, at least according to this verse, and that Jesus was focusing on, that Jesus came to be the Son of Man and the Son of God, so he could sit at the right hand of God and that he could defeat God's enemies and take this earth back for the glory of God and the purpose of God. And, and what you have here is this idea of enemies, that, that we're not just living a life where we're trying to trust God, then we die and go to heaven. We're living in a battle. We're living in this cosmic war that's been going on for ages, and that God has spiritual enemies, and that those spiritual enemies create human enemies on this planet, and the, the rebellion in the human heart against God, and the desire to transgress, and the desire to be our own king, and the rebellion we have against God's word, and against God's commandments, that, that makes people enemies of God. They're on the wrong side of the story. They're on the wrong team. They're on the wrong army, so to speak. And so it says in verse 2, God is still speaking to my Lord, speaking to this Messiah figure. And he says, rule in the midst of your enemies. So verse 1, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Then verse 2, rule in the midst of your enemies. There's a time in which this Messiah is ruling and yet the, the enemies are present. So that there's an until, until I make your enemies your footstool. Rule in the midst of your enemies. This is the age that we're living in now. That God is doing something to defeat his enemies. He's doing it in his way to overcome evil with good to overcome darkness by the power of the gospel. And so Jesus says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, so go and make disciples. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. This is, this is the age we're in, and this is the narrative your life is in. So you're listening to this podcast because you're somebody who at least is interested enough to listen to this podcast, which means you want to be a disciple of Jesus. You may feel you know, in a sense that you have a long way to go. And, you know, to be honest with you, so do I. Uh, we're all in this process of learning what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. But it says a lot about you that you're listening to this podcast. And and so one of the things I think it says is that you're in this story. You're in Christ, seated at the right hand of God with him, as Paul says in Ephesians 2. You've been crucified with Christ. You've been raised together with Christ. You've been made alive with Christ and seated with him at the right hand of God. And so you're part of this making God's enemies his footstool. We have to remember that we're in this story so that we see sin as an enemy of God. We see ourselves as enemies of sin. We see ourselves as enemies of darkness, enemies of the forces of darkness. And when I'm talking about forces of darkness in particular, I'm talking about spiritual forces of darkness. And so when people in this world are living as enemies of God, we, you know, we're in battle against them, but we're not in battle in the sense that we're trying to kill them, obviously. We're in battle with the weapons that the Bible tells us is our weapons of warfare, the belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, the gospel of peace, the helmet of salvation, the shield of faith, the sword of the Spirit. 
These are the weapons of our warfare. And, and we have to see, we just have to see the intensity and the seriousness of this story. Christ is making his enemies his footstool. He's putting his enemies under his feet, and he's using you and me to do it. He's telling us all authority has been given to him, and therefore we should go and be a part of this, this battle, this fight. Paul talked about fighting the good fight of faith. And so Jesus is ruling in, right now in the midst of his enemies. So we're going to have to, we're going to be attacked by enemies of God, and we have to learn how to live in that with the power of the gospel and the weapons of our warfare that are spiritual and not physical. So it says in verse 3, again, this is Yahweh still talking to my Lord, still talking to this Messiah figure, the Son of Man, the Son of God. He says, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. That The whole idea of holy garments, and this is a, a parable Jesus talks about, the wedding feast and the people who are at the wedding feast who belong have robes that were given by the groom. The one who didn't have a robe was kicked out. We read in Revelation that those who are before the throne of God wear robes the white robes of purity dipped in the blood of Christ. And so even the, here in Psalm 110 is talking about your people will offer themselves freely in holy garments, that we are clothed in the righteousness of Christ, and we want to wear these clothes. We want to wear this jersey of this team, so to speak. This is the, the side we're on. We, we're enemies of darkness. We're enemies of sin. We're enemies of deception. We're enemies of pride. We're enemies of lust. We're enemies of slander. We're enemies of gossiping and complaining. We're enemies, and we want to be used by this Messiah, this Lord, to place God's enemies under his feet. Ultimately, the last enemy is death, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15. And we will have a resurrection on the ultimate day of this Messiah's day of power. And in a sense, the same way that Christ is making his enemies his footstool in the course of thousands of years of, of him ruling in the midst of his enemies, the same thing's happening in our own lives, the enemies of our own sin, our own unbelief. These are things that we are, Christ is doing in our lives in, in this life. We are making our enemies under our feet, so to speak, as we learn obedience, as we learn love over hate, as we learn to be people of love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are fruits of the Holy Spirit in our lives. And as we learn to grow in the Holy Spirit filling our lives and being people of love, being people of mercy, being people of forgiveness, grace, not returning evil for evil, but responding to evil with good and with love. This is how we, in some sense, fight our battle. This is how we fight the battle in our own life. We believe the promises of God are more satisfying than the promises of sin, and so that begins to fight the battle against sin in our own lives. And we believe the same promise when it comes to fighting our enemies now. We believe Christ's presence with us, his Holy Spirit in us. He's the king sitting at the right hand of God. He is putting all things under his feet. And this is, we are on the winning army. We are part of this story, this larger story of what God is doing. So we don't have to take things into our own hands. 
We are ruling with Christ in the midst of his enemies, and we offer ourselves freely in service to him. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, we know that you are the King, you are the Messiah, you are the one that was written about 3,000 years ago, a thousand years before you were even born, in the mystery of how your Holy Spirit worked in human authors to write scripture. You were writing about your coming. It is amazing to think that this story that is found in the pages of ancient books that came true and is coming true in Jesus, and that we are part of an ancient story. We are part of an ancient war, and this is not Disneyland. This is a battleground, and you have enemies that you are putting under your feet, and we take those enemies seriously. You take right and wrong seriously. Right and wrong is a very big deal to you. And we want to be on the side of right. We want to be on the side of trusting in you. We want to be on the side of holiness and righteousness and goodness, faithfulness, love, overcoming evil with love and with good, and our own obedience, our own belief in who you say you are to truly believe who you say you are and to live our lives with that belief. I want to live my life believing your words, believing who you say you are. All authority in all of the universe is given to you. You sit at the right hand of the Most High because you are the Most High. You are fully human, the Son of Man, and you are fully God. And you are making the enemies of light and the enemies of good and the enemies of love. You are making your enemies your footstool. You are putting all your enemies under your feet. Somehow in the mystery of how you are doing this, we trust your plan that you are ruling in the midst of your enemies. But your people offer themselves freely to you. I offer myself freely to you. I come to you. I believe you. I trust you. I trust that you are king and that you are victorious and that you are the authority over all the universe. You will have the last word. And I want to be somebody clothed in your holy garments, wearing your name. And I know that you are with me always, always the I am present with me always with me to the very end of the age, and then you will dwell with your people, and you will be our God, and we will be your people, and you will wipe every tear from our eye, and we'll be brought into this glorious city, in this glorious creation, in a world exploding with your beauty, and your righteousness, and your splendor, and your glory, and your goodness, and your perfect love, and a resurrected body just like yours, bones, feet, hands, touching, embracing, eating, enjoying one another in your presence in the kingdom of God. You have already done this. You have already died on the cross. You have already risen from the dead. It's happening. It's already in play, and you've already started the new creation with your resurrection, the first of a new creation, and the guarantee of our own resurrection, those who offer themselves freely to you and become enemies of what you are an enemy of, 
rather than identifying with your enemies. We want to fight your enemies. I want to fight your enemies through love and faithfulness and righteousness, overcoming evil with good and the peace of the gospel. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to A Bigger Life, a podcast of The Crossing, a church in Columbia, Missouri. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe and give it a rating so people can find this content more easily or consider texting it to a friend or posting it on social media. Thanks for listening.